Welcome to Faster Please, the podcast. I'm your host, Jim Pethokoukas. Several times a month, I'll feature a lively conversation with a fascinating and provocative guest about how to make the world a better place through scientific discovery, technological innovation, and economic growth. You're also going to want to check out my Faster Please newsletter. You're on Substack throughout the week for fresh essays, Q&As, and stories from around the internet and around the world. When does economic policy become industrial policy? And has the Biden administration crossed that line? In this episode of Faster Please, the podcast, I'm talking with industrial policy skeptic Scott Lincecum about the Chips and Science Act, how competition with China complicates the argument for free markets, and more. Scott is the Director of General Economics and the Herbert A. Stifel Center for Trade Policy Studies at the Cato Institute. He's the author of numerous reports on industrial policy and international free trade, including The Updated Case for Free Trade with Alfredo Carrillo Obregón. He's also the author of Capitalism, a Dispatch Newsletter. Scott, welcome to the podcast. My pleasure. The Biden administration has been doing quite a bit. This infrastructure bill, uh, we've had a, a, a chips and R&D bill. Now we have the um, Inflation Reduction Act. The president has said that one thing he's trying to do is boost the productive capacity of the economy. Do you, th- do you view that as the main thrust of these bills? No, I think it's actually much more about uh, picking and choosing specific sectors. Uh, you can maybe argue for infrastructure, right, to the extent that uh, you know, roads and bridges are going to actually lead to the expansion of of the nat- national productive capacity. Okay, but it, particularly with semiconductors and the IRA, just classic industrial policy, the market it has failed. Um, we don't like the sectoral composition of the United States economy. Um, in particular, we are not making enough semiconductors. We are not making enough solar panels and wind turbines and electric vehicles. And we need to get government needs to get involved. Um, We need to not only encourage the consumption of these goods, but we need to actually uh, forcibly or through a lot of uh, subsidies and and sweeteners, um, incentivize onshoring of, of these critical industries. So I know that there are some uh, attenuated, I'll be nice, say, ideas that this will then boost the overall productive capacity after several years. This is the whole idea that the Inflation Action Reduction Act will actually reduce inflation by spending all this money um, over time, right? Yeah, right. But but really, let's I mean, let's be clear: uh, the immediate effects, um, the ones that you're actually you know that that don't require uh, stretching the economic imagination uh, beyond all recon- recognizable length, uh, is about a sectoral composition. It's about about changing the the shape of the U.S. economy. A more market-oriented approach would focus on basic things like creating a favorable tax code that's neutral to sectoral composition and funding basic research. But with industrial policy, you care about sectoral composition. You care about what the economy looks like rather than just GDP growth. Is America now doing full-throated industrial policy? No, 
but uh, we definitely have pushed the envelope. And I think I think that actually gets to one of the big myths that is pushed by industrial policy advocates here in the United States is there is this idea that we lived through this grand or terrible, depending on your viewpoint, uh, era of free market fundamentalism in which, um, you know, basically Milton Friedman got a hold of the economy and and ran it, um, right. you know, like a textbook. Um, that's that's absolute nonsense. Um, we have experimented with industrial policy for ages, going back to the 60s, the 70s, then into the 80s. We really liked it in the 80s and 90s. We backed off a little bit in the 90s and 2000s, but still had tons of industrial policy initiatives to uh, encourage certain types of manufacturing, certain types of jobs, to protect certain sectors. Um, and some of this was new. Some of it was longstanding stuff like the Jones Act. Um, so the idea that that we, we, we weren't engaging in industrial policy is, is pretty silly. Uh, but... Um, we certainly have have uh, have pushed the pedal down. Uh, we've pushed the accelerator down a little bit uh, in the last few months, um, starting with the infrastructure bill, um, which has uh, local content provisions by American this use these American workers um, produce these types of of um, you know charging stations that kind of stuff. You know specific um, uh, things, not just infrastructure. You know uh, as we normally consider it. Um, but then really ramping up with the CHIPS Act, um, which certainly, you know, has some basic research type stuff in it, um, but, uh, you know, throws $80 billion, potentially more, depending on how these tax credits shake out, to the domestic semiconductor manufacturers to actually put more fabs in the United States. It's a subsidy to build these plants in the United States. Correct. Use it and um, with, all, with, with several strings attached even, even further. Right. Um, but but the idea generally is, um, so the argument goes, the United States has experienced a dramatic collapse in semiconductor, semiconductor productive capacity over the last 30 years. Thanks again to the Milton Friedmanites, us at Cato. You know, we libertarians always run Washington, so it's all our fault. Um, and we need to tilt the scales. We need to basically do industrial policy like the Koreans and the Taiwanese and the Chinese are doing. Um, and we need to get more fabs, manufacturing facilities, semiconductor manufacturing facilities here in the United States. That's the idea. And then the IRA basically turned the knob to 11, right? Um, because the IRA um, went and and did very much the same thing with you know tens of billions of extra dollars, hundreds of billions, really, um, looking into uh, renewable energy, um, all sorts of programs, advanced manufacturing, tax credits, grants, you name it. So, but but really, um, again, this is not this is not new. Uh, most of the stuff that the IRA did was expand Obama era programs that were uh, that went on during the 2009 uh, stimulus bill. Um, you know, essentially revitalizing some of these programs, for example, with the Department of Energy um, that that had been in place for, for more than a decade. Industrial policy can refer to a lot of things, protecting industries from foreign trade, cutting checks to businesses or sectors deemed important, or offering strategic tax breaks and the like. Is what we're doing now closer to classic industrial policy? So this is, this is classic industrial right. policy. And in a sense... Um, I'm relieved um, because for the last two years, before these these the chips bill and the a little bit on infrastructure, um, we had this very very painful debate that we wonks 
uh, have to have about definitions. Um, because if you listen to some industrial policy advocates out there, like Maria Mazzucuto, um, the Italian economist who's all the rage in Europe, industrial policy, um, you listen to them, um, and there's some folks here in the United States who do this too. Uh, industrial policy is anything and everything. Um, I mean, WTO reform was industrial policy. Basic research gets thrown in. Military spending gets thrown in. Um, and you get these ridiculous statements like basically everything um, that goes into an iPhone was the result of government industrial policy, right? So that's a lot of nonsense. Um, again, there are plenty of kind of free market, market-oriented, libertarian, whatever you want to call it, stuff that just does not meet the traditional definition of industrial policy, meaning targeted and directed government action, tariffs, subsidies, whatever, to achieve a specific microeconomic, so we're narrow, narrow uh, uh, advantage over what the market can produce um, within national borders um, and, and always pursuant to some strategic plan. This is not uh, the NIH just giving out some grants and, oh, we struck one. Hey, that's great. No, you have a big plan, strategic plan, uh, and you're going to go out and, and determine you know, winners and losers. That is very much what what we're doing in the Chips Act and the and the IRA, um, and it's nice in the sense that we're getting back to a discussion of, of traditional industrial policy. Certainly, someone to argue that that there are even if they're generally skeptical of industrial policy, they would say, well, there's some sometimes we have to do it. Maybe uh, for defense related reasons, maybe we need to we need to do it. Maybe there's some other emergency. People would say climate change is like that kind of thing. Like we can't wait for the market to figure it out. It's a pressing emergency, much as as much as a geopolitical conflict would be. It's that kind of thing. Therefore, we must act. So, uh, I mean, even zany libertarians like me acknowledge, you know, a, a national defense exception to all of this stuff, right? Um, and there's actually a lot of literature I've written about uh, about how national defense really is quite different from socially related industrial policy. Um, and for for those reasons, and for very legitimate national security reasons, um, you know, you tend to push defense related stuff over the side, right? Um, even I am not going to say we should be outsourcing our nuclear weapons technologies to China, right? Um, I mean, you know, that kind of stuff, it's it's obvious. Uh, but also more, just as importantly, or almost as importantly, uh, there are pretty huge differences between defense procurement and in commercial industrial policy. One is there's no other buyer for defense-related stuff, right? Um, the market is the government's market. Um, you know, uh, the that makes the government really uniquely positioned and attuned as the consumer to care about how it's spending its money, uh, to actually have sophisticated, detailed information about the sector. The government knows a lot more about tanks than, you know, basically anybody else because the government's in the tank consumption business. Um, and then finally, the public tends to give the government a lot more benefit, benefit of the doubt about, about failures, about dollar figures and the rest, um, because again, it's, it's kind of the government's unique constitutional responsibility. So, uh, so national defense works. Climate change, though, I think is a problem. Um, because climate change is very, very much a, a consumption issue as much as it is a 
a production issue. And it's very little of a domestic production issue. I mean, of course, we care about, you know, uh, coal-fired electrical pl electricity plants and the rest. But at the end of the day, all we really care is we want to increase domestic consumption of renewable energy, right? So um, with respect to all of these products, um, there's no need that solar panels be made in America. Um, there's no, and quite frankly, there's a very strong argument that uh, by raising the prices of our renewable energy goods by slapping tariffs on them, by localization mandates like buy American policies, we're actually raising the prices of these goods and then discouraging consumption of renewable energy. So there's a really tough tension between uh, classic economic nationalist industrial policy and environmental. Uh, you don't have to take it from me. Uh, a big initiative of the Obama administration was to liberalize trade in environmental goods, we called it, because the Obama administration quite rightly observed that production of these things is not nearly as important as consumption of these things. And what helps maximize consumption? Trade free trade. And so uh, that deal never got finished. It's been shelved because, of course, everybody hates trade these days. Um, but I think that it's it's a lot tougher argument on the climate change side that we need industrial policy um, because it's just not, it, it just doesn't have the same dynamic as something like national defense. Let's frame it, let me frame it somewhat differently. What if the policy was, here's how we're going to, here's how we're going to deal with climate change. We need to pull carbon from the air. So that technology is sort of carbon removal technology is something that doesn't really exist right now other than some very experimental forms. We're going to fund it just like Apollo, just like the Manhattan Project. Would you would you favor something like that, assuming you thought there was the actual need to pull carbon from the sky? So so this is a great example of where you have the industrial policy approach and the, the more market oriented approach. So um, the industrial policy approach is that we need that carbon capture technology to be made by Americans in America and not just deployed by Americans. We need it made in America, whereas the more free market approach would be a, a prize, right? We don't right. care how it's made. We don't care who makes it. I mean, with, again, a few security-related exceptions. Right. Yeah. But if if tomorrow the Korean government or a Korean Samsung or whatever comes up with the most amazing carbon capture technology in the world, it's like, you know, Mr. Fusion from back in the future. You just slap it on a power plant and suddenly we're zero emitters. Um, you win the prize. We don't care that it was made by a Korean company. We don't care that there are going to be Korean jobs and non-American jobs. No, 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 no. The industrial policy side, no, we care a lot about who makes this stuff and that it's made in America using American materials and Amer and then and that's just uh, and and I think, you know, the the pandemic for all of its terribleness um, provided us a pretty good example of the industrial policy approach to pandemic stuff and the market approach. So that, and that's in the vaccines. So the more free market approach, essentially a prize, but a procurement contract was uh, we went to Pfizer and BioNTech. And if you look at the contract for those vaccines, it said, we have nothing to do with your supply chain. We don't care how you do it. We don't care what you do. Just get an FDA approved vaccine and we're all in. We're going to pay, 
right? That's it. Right. Uh, there's a clauses in that contract that literally say we will have no control over how you make this whatever, right? Ton of global collaboration, of course, BioNTech's a German company, blah, 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 blah. Okay. Totally different approach. There's another company in Maryland called Emergent Biosolutions. Now, Emergent Biosolutions is a heavily uh, government-connected contract manufacturer that has been essentially put here for pandemic preparedness. Lots of government involvement over the years. Uh, Emergent was the kind of all-American government contractor model. It was is very much similar to a lot of the stuff we hear today about what we need, not just for pandemics, but for other stuff as well. We need to put this factory in America. We need to put it right outside of Washington. Well, Emergent um, hasn't made a handful of finished doses, and in fact, has had a ton of problems with um, uh, sanitation issues. They've had to destroy a bunch of doses and the rest. Um, and I think it's a really nice example or nice contrast between a more market-oriented market, market or, oriented approach and, and a very domestic-oriented approach, and, and one being much more industrial policy than the other. Now, we can argue on the margins about, well, you know, we funded mRNA research back in the day and have that. But, but I mean, look, comparatively, um, there's two, there are two very different approaches to, um, to economic policymaking. It was kind of easy to defend free markets during the Cold War, but have things become more complicated with China, given the interdependency of our economies? How easy is it for you to maintain your pro-market views on industrial policy questions with China? China certainly makes it a little bit harder, and the nature of technology makes it a little bit harder. But um, you know, we have we have existing laws and processes for a lot of that. And you you used a word there that that sets off my libertarian spidey senses. You said important. Um, the issue there is who decides what's important, right? And the, again, the idea is not that we allow. Uh, mass proliferation of dual-use technologies. Uh, we rely on China for weapon systems or critical inputs to weapon systems. Um, but it's also that we have to have a lot of skepticism about what is and isn't important. Um, and I have very little problem allowing, uh, you know, the OFAC and all the guys at Commerce and whatever to 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 apply the export control regime to end. We have um, we have U.S. laws that require the Department of Defense to look at defense procurement um, and look at uh, weak links in the chain. In fact, the Defense Production Act, before it was used to make baby formula, uh, well, used to be used correctly. We used to, DOD used to look at its defense supply chain and say, you know what? We don't have a really uh, good producer of, stable producer of widgets, whatever, in that, that are important for our weapon systems. We need to subsidize that. We're going to give them $20 million. You know what? No problem. The problem is that now the word important has become so distorted from its original meaning that steel rebar is being restricted on national security grounds, um, not to mention all of the other areas. So certainly this is there it, it there is a need to consider 
China to consider the natures of technologies and all that. But we've gone way, way beyond what's in any way a rational policy. And and it's so, and you have to be very concerned about politics. You know, one of the little known secrets about the global chip shortage is how American export control policy contributed to the global chip shortage. Because what the Trump administration did was it started restricting pretty basic semiconductor technologies um, to, to China and Huawei and the rest. Um, that not only reduced the global supply of kind of bulk semiconductors. So I'm not talking about these fancy three nanometer or whatever stuff. I'm talking about kind of the junky stuff that we put a hundred of them in a car for for not a great reason, but we do. Um, so not only did that reduce global capacity, but it also caused all these Chinese companies to start hoarding chips because they were scared to death of being cut off from these chip supplies because, believe it or not, China remains very dependent on the United States for a lot of uh, semiconductor stuff. Um, well, that, of course, uh, made things worse. Now, uh, the Biden administration quietly rolled some of that back. Um again, in response to, to shortages. But that's the type of stuff we need to be really worried about. We also need to be concerned about, well, if we restrict these, uh, especially on the export side, um, if we restrict these exports, is that just going to harm American tech champions, like say Qualcomm or whatever? Um, and while bolstering French competitors, European competitors, Korean competitors, whatever, that are still going to sell to China anyway. So there needs to be a very rational skeptical approach to all this stuff when you can't just scream China and then suddenly protect subsidize and, and do the rest. But of course, they're going to, they're going to be exceptions. Um, the, the goal back to a saner approach to those exceptions. How do you see this experiment with uh, semiconductor subsidies playing out? Yeah. Um, well, look, I, there's no doubt. When we look back that... at it in 10 years. We'll say, well, well, that's, we learned that we can do that. We learned the United States can play that game and win or going to say, well, it didn't, didn't really quite work out the way we hoped. It's it's going to, well, it's always hard, right? Because, um, you know, anytime there's a new industrial policy announcement, you're going to get companies that are beneficiaries making all these investment announcements. Uh, the goal and the hard part is then tracking and determining whether those announcements were made because of the subsidy or whether they were already going to do it and they're just trying to get government cash or curry favor with the administration and the rest. Um the other problem is uh, determining what would have happened in the absence of the program. You know, one of the things I was yelling about to, I guess, nobody uh, but before the CHIPS Act was implemented was that um, American semicon or, or semiconductor companies and big consumers like Apple and Ford and GM had realized years ago that they needed to rebalance a little bit that because of the pandemic, geopolitical stuff, uh, and just other reasons, they they were a little top heavy in Taiwan or in Asia. Uh, and so they started uh, planning to invest back in the United States. And again, Apple was saying, we're willing to pay more to have Samsung right next to our big facility in Austin, for example. Um, so the other thing is to determine, well, how, so, so all these investments were already planned uh, before the CHIPS Act ever, ever became a thing. Um, but of course, the government's going to take credit for all of this, right? Ah, we did all of this. Look, look at our, you know, feast upon our works, right? Uh, so, so that's going to be, that's a challenge. Uh, but I do think, um, I'm pretty confident, quite frankly, that they're, they're going to run into a lot of problems. 
problems. Um, one problem is, uh, like I said, they've attached strings to this stuff. Um, there are prevailing wage requirements and other rules and regulations about uh, favoring um, uh, disadvantaged communities and all the you know, usual stuff, right? Um, these things always tend to, to gum up the works a little bit. Um, the, but the other big issue is that run into pre-existing policies that we didn't fix, uh, immigration bottlenecks, uh, other labor supply problems. There's a big story in the AP last week that Intel in Ohio can't find construction workers. Uh, well, you know, that's because we didn't liberalize immigration along with all this industrial policy money we just threw at the economy, right? Um, we have, uh, of course, plenty of tariffs on stuff that you need to build factories. Uh, we have tax policy with respect to expensing that that kind of discourages uh, long-term investments in capital intensive manufacturing. I, mean, I can go down the list, right? And we didn't fix any of that. So um, at the end of the day, will we move the needle a little bit? Uh, maybe. I mean, government's very powerful. We're throwing a lot of money at this. But will there be a great global rebalancing? Um, you know, color me, color me quite skeptical. And, and in fact, I think, you know, the other thing we have to consider are the risks. Um, if we are successful um, and there suddenly is a, a glut in global semiconductors, because you've been reading the news right now, the semiconductor industry is actually kind of in some trouble globally right now. Um, we, we have kind of gluts are popping up, people stockpiled, like I mentioned, um, and now they realize that, oh, actually Americans' consumption or oh, the world consumption of chips isn't insatiable. Um, so now there's concerns there. So if we have a, a chips-related glut, because the United States and Europe and Korea and others all through subsidies at this, um, what are we going to do with all those extra chips? Well, if you look back at the 80s and 90s, uh, we had trade wars. Great. We slapped tariffs on Japanese semiconductors and then Korean semiconductors, um, which caused all sorts of, of ripple effects throughout the U.S. economy. It pushed the computer industry offshore, for example. So I'm, look, I mean, being, uh, of course, a, a libertarian ideologue, but also a student of history and industrial policy, I, I remain pretty confident that we're going to look back on this and go, eh, that was not the greatest idea. Scott, thanks for coming to the podcast. My pleasure. Pleasure.